Welcome to Certified Credit's Talk Data to Me podcast, where our FCRA certified experts help you tackle the latest regulations, emerging trends, and unique challenges of the mortgage industry with an intuitive, people-first approach. And of course, data. Because your business is built on more than just a score. Visit CertifiedCredit.com for more information. Certified Credit helps you hone your best practices from lead generation to post-closing QC and everything in between. This is Elizabeth Langbarton of Certified Credits Talk Data to Me podcast, and joining me today is Heather Lundy and Jillian Sorensen. Hello, ladies. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks How so are much. You? Thanks so much for having us. Absolutely. And you guys are so lucky. You guys get to be together in one room. That's awesome. I love when we could come together as mortgage professionals and collaborate, and being able to do it in person is so special. Agreed. 100%. So... Let's talk a little bit about your backgrounds. So Jill, you've been on the podcast before, but still give us a refresher for anybody who doesn't you know, remember your background. I am an account executive with Flagstar Bank. I've been at Flagstar a little over 12, almost 13 years now. Um, I have a 28 year history in the mortgage industry, so I've been around a bit. <laughs> and Heather, you're new to the Talk Data to Me podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Heather, tell us a little bit about yourself. So currently I am a third party um, contract processor. Um, I have God knows how many years now. It's been since 1985 I've been in the business and I've been through everything. The last 20 years, I've actually been an underwriting manager um, and then was laid off last year and decided to do my own gig. Love it. I absolutely love it. So. I'm really excited to have you both here with your expertise and background because we are talking about the gig economy, uh, contract workers, self-employed, and how do we help them become mortgage ready? So I'm just gonna kick it off with a quick question for you ladies, because if anybody's not familiar at home, we have this thing called the gig economy. So really what is the gig economy and how is it impacting the mortgage lending process? You wanna take this one or you want me to touch on it? I think that the gig economy is really just a more of a millennial buzz term. Um, for us, the concept has been around for a long time. However, we are seeing it come more and more into practice. So I think when somebody thinks of gig, they think of something that's short term in nature um, or a side hustle, side okay. business, secondary employment. Um, I think there's buzzwords now like uh, like gig and we would have previously called it seasonal work or uh, part time second job or uh, they used to had used to have a term called de minimis uh, business, which means they had a secondary employment as self-employed. But now I think we've just simplified it and using full terms like gig economy. Okay. So inside of this gig economy, are we also encompassing people who are full-time employed or are we just talking about our part-time workers? I think gig can be considered anything mm -hmm. from, you know, having two employment, you know, yeah. situations. Employed and have a side hustle, gig. Yeah. Um, 
in the business. I think it just depends on what you're referring to and how you're referring to it. But the agencies, all of them do cover a lot of these terms, but they're under, you know, old verbiage and not under necessarily new verbiage, if that makes sense. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. And I think the real important question why we're here today is how is this impacting the mortgage lending process? Because I'm sure you're seeing it more and more as loans come into underwriting that people want to qualify that additional income to, to count towards their mortgage. So how are you seeing this making an impact? We're seeing it, um, but we're seeing it with borrowers who are just like starting out. So the agency state that you have to have a two year history of being self-employed, um, but we can look at it if it's been at least 12 months reported on the last tax return, and then they have year to date, obviously. Um, we can make a case by case decision on that depending on other factors in the file, you know, like credit score, reserves mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, but it's 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 happening. So, I mean, we have done some, we haven't done some. So yeah. it just all depends on the nature of the file. I think to further expound on what Heather said is we see borrowers who started a business three months ago. It's going fantastically and they want to apply for a mortgage. Yeah. Not quite there yet. Congratulations to borrowers who are starting out with a new side gig. However, agencies, all of the agencies are looking for some type of evidence of continuance. And that's not an easy thing to do when you're just mm -hmm. starting out. So I would say a good rule of thumb is at least 12 full months reported on tax returns. Mm -hmm. um, and if it was something that a borrower was already doing, as an example, we just had one a few weeks ago where the guy um, was, I wanna say he played soccer in high school, played soccer in college, and then he worked as a soccer coach, and then he moonlit in the evenings by, by um, also teaching soccer or being a soccer coach for a private organization. Mm -hmm. So across the board, does it make sense? Absolutely, it just, he has a history of it, experience with it, probably it's very reasonable to expect that that's likely to continue. But I think somebody who's an engineer and then driving for Uber, we're gonna need to see, I would imagine two years of that because okay. it's not easy having two years of, of two full-time jobs essentially. Okay. And so for qualifying income, I think you have to be able to document continuance by also documenting that they can handle two jobs for two years, I right. think. If it's in something that, that they're already doing, it's just kind of a continuation of what they're already doing for their main gig. I think um, it can be looked at, but if it's completely different, I think in general, rule of thumb is two years. So does that two year standard also apply when we're talking about business owners, independent contractors, individuals that their full-time job is this self-employed status? Yes. Yeah. I would say it depends, but <laughs> sales, underwriting, you know, hey, um, so like in my case, okay, so mm -hmm. I've been a salary, you know, underwriting manager <clears throat> for umpteen years and starting this year, I'm going to be a 1099 employee. So this year's earnings, I can't qualify because I don't have a two year history, even though I've got the background. I would still need a two-year history on my tax returns in order to qualify for a mortgage. Okay. I disagree. <laughs> okay. And why, why do you disagree, Jill? Um, because in Heather's case, she's been an underwriting manager covering all encompasses, or, you know, underwriting risk. 
that's even a deeper dive than you do in processing. And I would say, especially if it was for like a VA loan, VA yeah. loan actually yeah. allows less than two years. And in some cases, even less than one year, they want a really good reason for it. And I believe with 25 years of underwriting management experience to third party contract processing with the number of contacts and the number of referring partners that Heather has, I would say that's a really solid letter of explanation and a stamp approval. But I'm in sales and she's in underwriting. So right. I would well, say yes, you would say no. Well, and that's why we're having the two sides of the coin here. So as we're diving into you know what you're talking about there, I think we also have to think about like that seasonality of it and that impact of is this a primary income, is this secondary income, or is the you know, have you been in that field? So how are you seeing in this example? We'll we'll use you know Heather's example from your perspective, Jill. Let's say Heather was doing this as like a part-time gig on top of her her daily job. Um, how would that impact it versus her being a self-employed individual? You would agree on the two years? Yeah, if it was a second job, because yeah. working two, you know, working full-time is a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> working two, two jobs is a lot harder and to do it and stay doing it, I think, is ultimately why most of the agencies want a two-year history mm -hmm. to make sure that you have the stamina to be able to work two jobs continuously. Because keep in mm -hmm. mind, if we're going to use that income for qualifying. We need to make sure that it's going to continue because the borrower's ability to repay is based on using that second income. Right. So I think for a second gig um, or even a seasonality second gig, two-year history, I think, is... Okay. I think that's very reasonable. That, that makes sense. And I think looking at this, it gives lenders a real straight and narrow. Here's when you can kind of get around it a little bit. And here's when you cannot. And it's when it's that second job, you cannot get around it. So we've put up that little framework there. So most lenders want to see a history of consistent income, as we've been discussing, uh, and with the likelihood of the same in the future. How do gig workers demonstrate this history? Are there other ways beyond um, you know, having that two-year history? That, and how can lenders help those borrowers qualify? So um, a good example would be going back to Heather has the history. How can these gig workers or these, these individuals support this? What do they need to provide that says, besides tax statements, that says like, hey, I've been doing, you know, I've been doing this job. Is there anything else that they can provide? It's really hard because the agencies do require us to look at the tax returns. Okay. So it's really just depends on the length of how they've been doing it. Now, let's just say you have a borrower that does have a full-time job and just started driving for Uber a year ago, but prior to driving for Uber, they worked at a pizza place. Mm -hmm. So we have a two year history of um, a second job. So in that case, I would look at the past 12 months tax returns okay. on their gig income. Okay. Now, whenever we're talking about that two year history, that means it can be two years in any field, I guess we'll call it like a pizza versus Uber. So second, second employment, um, it not necessarily has to be. Okay in the same line of work as your primary employment. So as long as we can establish that they do have a history of working part-time 
at a second job for two years, I'm willing to look at it. Now I can't, I'm speaking for myself, I'm not speaking for other underwriters, so I guess it just depends. And it also depends on what the AUS says too. Mm -hmm. So is that going to be the case for all loans or is that just the case for those government backed loans? No, it's a case for all. Um, but again, you know, like Fannie and Freddie are pretty good saying, well, we'll look at 12 months on the last tax return if there's not a full two years. So then it becomes kind of an underwriter discretion. Mm -hmm. And depending on what we see in the file, like if were they working a second job previous to that, um, you know, how is their income been in the past 12 months on what they reported? So there's different factors that go into every loan. And like I said earlier, it do, all depends on compensating factors too. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, do they have the reserves? Do they have good FICO? Um, you know, payment shock, a number mm -hmm. of things we look at. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So we know that these lenders and investors are required to have that two year steady income before qualifying for a loan. And we've talked about some of these exceptions. So we've talked about, you know, you can have two, a job for a year and then a different job for another year. Are there any other exceptions to this rule? And I think, Jill, you might have a little bit more um, less strict definitions <laughs> uh, than, than Heather. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so when let's just take our self, our uh, contractors. So yeah. like um, when uh, it's, it's seasonal right now. So the soccer coaches, the swim instructors, the, mm -hmm. you know, those guys that also, I think I just saw one that was, um, she was a full-time teacher and she taught swimming lessons at the private school after school. Okay. Totally made sense. I mean, mm -hmm. she'd been doing it one year, one full year, but she'd also only been a teacher for one full year. Previous to that, she was a college grad. And it makes sense that from the moment she started working as a teacher, she also started, you know, after after her school duties mm -hmm. were done for the day, she would go and, and work as a contractor for swim lessons for the school. And she was paid by both. And it just made it made absolute sense that it was going to be that it was going to continue. I mean, it's right there on the school grounds. It was just it just made sense. So right. we were able to use that. And I would definitely call that a side gig. Mm -hmm. um, and that was absolutely, we use that for qualifying income on an FHA loan. Oh, very cool. So, I mean, I think there is a, there's a little bit of flexibility there, but then there's also the negative side of this where, you know, we get a borrower, we get the, yeah, we're going to be great. We get pre-approved or we get that pre-qualification and then it doesn't make it through underwriting. So what, can you guys walk us through a little bit of that situation? I don't know how many people would pre-approve mm -hmm. somebody know. with a one year of secondary income or one year of self-employment or okay. seasonality without really digging into it. I mean, okay. I would say we're more likely to hear about those loans all the way up front mm -hmm. before borrowers even gone shopping. And I, I'm, I'm gonna say with relative certainty that by the time it gets to underwriting, that's been pretty well vetted by a really good processor, a, mm -hmm. you know, a helpful AE somewhere, maybe an underwriting support desk or three, um, to package that yeah. up. Because I think most, or a lot of LOs would just say, no, it can't be done. Two year history required. Right. And the only reason 
is I've dug so deeply into the guides for any and all possible things. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things that Fannie Mae has in their guideline is generally. I yeah. love the word generally. generally. Generally means we have all kinds of room to make it work if we have compensating factors and you know the layering of risk of course is unpacked and addressed if that makes sense that makes that makes sense now are there ever situations where we start this process we start the underwriting process and then we end up with someone who ends up not qualifying. So I know we're talking about this vetting process, but I'm thinking back to our previous conversation, Jill, where we have uh, the undisclosed liabilities, or we come up with um, a VOE that, hey, we went to go re-verify your employment, and guess what? You don't have employment. So are there situations that arise like that with some of these gig workers? Yes, it, 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 it's across the board. It's truly across the board. It doesn't matter what kind of job you have, income you have, it's across the board. I actually think though for these gig workers, because normally, like let's just let's just say a seasonal worker. Mm -hmm. Seasonal worker, you know, just had somebody have this where it was right before Fannie Mae um, reverted to their pre-COVID VVOE requirements. Okay. But during the COVID VVOE, VVOE requirements. We had to document that the business was still in existence and that mm -hmm. so this particular guy works as a 1099 independent contractor for touring bands. Well, oh. in the wintertime, touring bands are not necessarily active touring. Right. So we were all going, how are we going to document that this business is open and active? It's not really a business. It's more of an independent contractor. Right. I mean, we were chasing our tails trying to find documentation that would satisfy against a repurchase. Mm -hmm. Right. So how did you end up qualifying that? Um, in that case, the borrowers, um, the administrator of the tours, um, actually wrote a very good letter that he does it every year for these three bands and, okay. and bands were pretty cool too, I have to say. He <laughs> um, was like, for he, he tours with these three bands and this is the expected tour schedule so far for next year and okay. this is likely to continue. Mm -hmm. That was good enough. Yeah. Okay. So putting that towards these the, some of these other job fields, let's say something like um, freelance work. If someone had, let's say, a contract that was for an extended period of time, could they use that to prove they would have the income? So maybe they don't have that two years, but they go, hey, I have all these contracts that are going to go for the next year, two years, etc." That is absolutely something that we mm -hmm. would look at, is mm -hmm. if they had you know, 15 contracts, absolutely. Right. There's that like statement that, hey, they'll keep having this income. Yes. All right. So we've talked about how, who qualifies, how they qualify. Um, we haven't talked about how it impacts the mortgage itself. So will a borrower's interest rate be impacted by gig work? No. No? No, I think so. No. I mean, okay. I think some lenders out there charge an LLPA for okay. self-employed borrowers, but not, I, want, I don't think in general, uh, the only difference 
I would say is if the borrower doesn't qualify or meet the qualifying requirements for a Fannie, Freddie, FHA, VA, USDA loan, we okay. call those agency loans, then they would have to go to a non-QM. And non-QM does give the ability to qualify with two years bank statements. Mm-hmm. I've also seen a 1099 loan out there. However, they do require um, bigger down payments and they do typically come with um, different interest rates than an agency, you know, um, government higher back. risk. Yes, higher risk. So it's priced for risk. So if if they miss qualifying for an agency loan, yes, that potentially the costs are higher if you're going to do a non a non QM type when, loan. You mentioned something interesting in there about the down payment requirements. So are the down payment requirements different for someone who's a 1099? No. Mm-mm. Nope. No. It's interesting. I think it's really. I, it's interesting that you know we're hearing now it's not any different the interest rates typically aren't that different because i think that's one of the rumors that we hear a lot is that it's go you're oh if you're self-employed your interest rate's going to be higher you're going to have to have at least that 20 percent down payment because on social media that's what's being said if you go on TikTok or anywhere where like a consumer is going to get information I know I've seen them on TikTok. So I think it's really interesting that that's not necessarily the case. That is really interesting that you would it say is. that. And I would, I would go back and say some lenders charge a loan level price adjustment okay. for self-employed borrowers. Um, but I think the difference, the real difference in interest rate would go if a borrower just was will not meet Fannie Mae guidelines, mm-hmm. um, Fannie, Freddie, FHA, VA, USDA. Yeah and has to go a non-QM type loan. And then yes, that would be a significant difference in down payment and or terms. Um, But I think, I do think it's very possible that there are not enough loan officers who realize that you can do a loan for a borrower who's been self-employed for less than two years. Mm -hmm. You can do a loan for a borrower who's had seasonal income less than the ideal length of time. There are, there when whenever you see generally in the guidelines, that means somebody gets to make a decision. And I think it really goes back on the loan originator who asks good questions to a borrower, gathers really good documents, helps the borrower explain the situation mm-hmm. in really good letters of explanation and presents it to underwriting as go, why wouldn't you accept this income? I right. think we just shove it in and say, borrower's been self-employed less than two years, tell me if you'll do it. Yeah, that's not typically the way to get loans approved, but when we dig deeper and they talk to their consumers, have the borrower write letters, have, you know, whoever is contracting with them write a letter. I mean, there are ways to document continuance other than just a two-year history. Right. Well, and I think that's really interesting that you bring up communication. The communication of all this is critical. And I think with the kind of the flex, not the flexibility, but the different situations, the variety of scenarios that come about with gig work, it's so important to have that open line of communication with your processors, with your underwriters, having conversations and not just forcing it through. Right. Good point. Yeah. So, all right. I have one last question for you ladies while I have you, and that is, what loan programs can these self-employed borrowers qualify for? What are you guys seeing as um, the most popular options? What are you seeing as some of the you know better options for for self-employed borrowers? 
I wouldn't say there's a better option um, because every single product um, that agencies give us, it, it, they can help self-employed borrowers. Um, there's also, you know, certain um, products for first-time home buyers. So mm -hmm. it just, it kind of depends where the borrowers are going to fit and what's best for them um, with regards to like guidelines and, you know, what their FICO requirement is or what their down payment is. So being self-employed doesn't have any effect on that. I agree. Being, I mean, being self-employed is really just your source of income. Mm -hmm. um, I do also want to point out, it is possible that some of the commentary that's on TikTok and maybe some of the other social sites really has to do with when borrowers write off every dollar that they earn until they have a negative, mm -hmm. we can't really help them because no. they're, if they're telling the government that they don't have any qualifying income, they can't really tell us that, um, oh, wait a minute. I was just writing those off, so I didn't have to pay taxes on it. You know, um, right. we can take that bottom line number as opposed to the top number. Um, so it is possible that that would then push them into the non-QM line right. category. Oh, okay. Not being able to document your income and not being able to document, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Consistent mm -hmm. income okay. using traditional documentation standards. And that's when they get bumped up into non-QM lending. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I think that's probably where that information's coming from. And I only think about it from the perspective of if you go on these social platforms where a lot of young home buyers are getting their information from, um, number one, it's important that as a lender, as someone in the mortgage industry, we're dispelling these rumors, we're having real conversations and that we're communicating effectively with our borrowers. Um, but I think a lot of that is probably coming from the everybody who's like, they're house hacking or they are coming through and they're saying like oh yeah here's how you can start a business and never have to pay taxes again and like all these different schemes we'll call them that are floating around out on TikTok for for how you can make more money or you can spend less on taxes and so you end up with a borrower who potentially has written off all of these things and then don't have the income to qualify correct correct but I think at the end of the day, it's so important to have that communication with borrowers and to have truthful information out there. So I so appreciate you ladies sitting down with me and talking through this loan process for self-employed. Is there anything else that you think is important for lenders to know as they navigate the waters of helping self-employed and gig workers? I would just say, you know, if they have a processor in their office, you know, to make sure that they're speaking to them, speaking to their AE, and um, if they don't have any processors, so before we start getting a buyer's hopes up, you know, we can collect the documentation and, and then have somebody take a look at it and say, okay, well, this is what my thought is or whatnot, you know, and, and there's always, you have a hard file if you think it's a hard file, you know, and, and you're not really sure and stuff like that, then I would say, you know, submit a pre-approval to your lender. So that way an actual underwriter can take a look at it. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we can do it, but we're gonna need this, this, and this, or if it's something that we totally can't do. And then we just need to make sure that when we're communicating with the borrower, we're letting them know the why. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's what I'm seeing mostly lately is the borrowers don't know the why. And if you explain the why to where it makes sense to them, then I don't think we're gonna see as much TikTok, you know, yeah. you know, this lender couldn't do me because, you know, they just didn't right. go self-employed. Right. That's right. not true. Right. 
Jill, do you have anything that you think is really important for a lender to know as they, they navigate this process? I would say before you believe that two years are required, dig into the guidelines. <clears throat> send me an email, send your Flagstar AE an email. We actually did, um, after starting to talk about this, we started kind of a, a, a um, columned worksheet that shows if this then. And I do think that too often borrowers are told no because they don't have a flat two years, two years tax returns, which means it could be longer than two years. And all the agencies do allow for some flexibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think the more loan officers are aware of, mm -hmm. of, of the generalities um, that are in agency guidelines, the better they're gonna be um, helping their consumers moving forward. Is they, there are exceptions to this. That's why there are exceptions to it. And mm -hmm. I think that's knowing your guidelines and or having a great lender that can support you through knowing those guidelines is key. Yeah. Love it. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining me. I so appreciate your time. And I am so grateful for all of your wonderful input. And I'm sure our audience will be as well. Thank you, ladies. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. You too. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Certified Credits Talk Data to Me podcast. With over 35 years of industry experience, Certified Credit is your multifaceted mortgage solutions partner. Learn how our commitment to passionate service, innovative products, and superior technology create a more profitable and efficient lending environment for our clients at CertifiedCredit.com. Certified Credit, more than just a score.